a guini ushla a fubbleje, current father of Gachtena a Talbalyaha and Shad. Welcome to all who are here assembled representing the community here in St. Flannan's, but also to so many who shared this broadcast with us through the medium of webcam. I'm so delighted to welcome particularly with Scarif Bay FM, and thank you to Jim Collins and Patricia Moore, but Lucas here with us, recording the segment and the talk. And of course, these talks, the five in series, every Tuesday, are in conjunction with the Church of Ireland Mind Matters. And thank you to the Church of Ireland and the Mind Matters initiative for their support and help. Two in a, a very special way, the speakers that we have are advertised on social media and they are advertised indeed on our Facebook page and all social media and outlets. A particular mention to Dan Danaher of the, the Clare Champion. Two, the talks are aimed to be able to throw light in time of darkness. They are entitled Mandatum, that in a sense of the Spirit and the Lord and Almighty God in this time of Lent and preparation for Easter, going into the midst of all of us where many dare not to tread. And our purpose with the talks is to offer hope, encouragement, comfort, a way forward, a step forward, and to be able to offer hope. Tonight, in a very special way, it is a great privilege for me because I'm so aware of Mr. Joe Slattery being present, one of our, our own indeed, in but Joe's brilliant, brilliant work. Joe is an experienced addiction counsellor and coordinator of the North Star Family Support Project, a community project based in Limerick. Joe is a specialist in dealing with issues of substance abuse with adolescents and their families. Joe is advanced certified in the EAGALA EGLA model of equine assisted counselling and CEO of JS Equine Assisted Therapies. Joe is a public speaker, educator in the area of drug abuse and disadvantage. He is a TED speaker with appearance on the Tammy Tiernan Show, the Marian Fanukin Show, God rest her indeed, and nationwide and many other public uh, arenas. Joe, tonight, on behalf of all who are here assembled, may I welcome you to St. Flannan's Cathedral here in Killaloo in County Clare, and you are initiating our first talk in this, this Lenten series of 2023. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and speak today. It's, you know, I've done a lot of talks around Limerick, Tipperary and, and some national stuff, but it's the first time I spoke in my own community. I've been living here for going on 10 years now. And it's actually, to be honest, it's probably the first time in all places I've lived where I felt I was actually part of a community. Uh, I love living here. I love the diversity that's here. I love that even though there is different stages of uh, wealth, and you can see it across the two towns, it's very inclusive. So it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your bank account. 
all the children are welcome to play together, all the sports and recreations, it doesn't matter. I just find the place really inclusive uh, and I'm really honoured to be, to be part of this community. So, yes, so I'm the coordinator of the North Star Family Support Project. So we work with families affected by our loved ones' substance misuse. And when you speak about hope, you, when you have a loved one involved in substance misuse, obviously there's a lot of stigma and shame, there's a lot of embarrassment. So people can go a long time, months, sometimes even years before they'll reach out to get support because of their loved one's substance misuse, simply down to shame. Especially as a parent, and if it's a, your adult child or your teenage child, whatever case me, because the first thought is, what did I do wrong? It's my fault that my children are doing what they're doing, and out under adulthood, but where did I go wrong? If only I'd done something different, or if only I said no here, if only I'd done that. And Obviously, the nature of addiction is a very lonely place, especially for the drug user as well. So now I work with the families and support the families, but for many years I worked with drug users. And I've never met a drug user who didn't have a heartbreaking story behind their situation. You know, there's a lot of uh, talk out there, general public kind of uneducated in this area, making said, oh, they make choices and it's their own choice to use and their own choice that they've done this. And that's rarely the truth. You know, if, if, you, if you talk to a person and listen to their story and go back to the core of their story, there's always a lot of heartache, there's always a lot of trauma and it usually develops in childhood. So you'll have a young person who's been traumatised in one way or another, and sometimes it can be from within the family, uh, but it's like generations of trauma. I've never met a parent that didn't want the best for their children. I've met loads of parents in, that were parenting through their own traumas and maybe not emotionally be, uh, available or able to give a nurturing support because they've been damaged, the children themselves. So there's this cycle of generation. And you are working with people, they're just people, you know, they're just people who are hurting, that want, they don't want to be in addiction, they don't want to be living the way they're living, they don't want to be having to be begging on the street, they don't want to be uh, providing like emotional torture to their loved ones to get money to, to pay for their substances, you know, and they are in a dark place, they know that they're doing wrong, right? But, when you have uh, someone taking substances, in a way, well, what's the substance for? What does it do? It helps them medicate the mass, their pain, their senses of insecurity, their senses of unworthiness, their senses of self-shame and all these kind of things they do. So in a way, they're kind of protecting themselves. But outside that loved one, there's usually a mother, there's a father, there's a sister, there's a brother, there's a niece, there's a nephew, there's neighbours, there's cousins, who all go on this journey of addiction with that person. And they don't have, in a lot of cases, the substances to ease their pain. They're the ones who are really going on that journey. So we work a lot with families that are kind of along this road some many years before they come to support. And even when they do come to support, it's never for themselves. It's like, help my loved one and I'll be okay. And we're like, well, no, you won't be okay. Who's minding you? Who's taking care of you? What are you doing to help yourself while your loved one's on their journey? And a lot of the times they'll say nobody. Or a lot of times, if you can create that ambience, they'll break down and crying because no one has been minding them for a very long time. They're left in despair, they're left uh, feeling hurt, they're left with a sense of no trust. And then the hope or the lack of hope that this is ever going to change. Is their loved one ever going to change their behaviours? Are they always going to be in substance abuse? Or are they going to die? Are they going to be, die by suicide? You know, 
are they going to be found overdosed are they going to you know be attacked by a drug dealer these are really genuine fears that people come to our doors with and what our job is is to help them move away from i suppose that emotional kind of crisis response so what will happen is or let's cause addiction is like the crisis train and then the family are all on that crisis train with them because that's how you respond because it's totally emotional and you're just responding 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 and what we're trying to do is okay if we can move you away from that crisis response and we move you into a state of okay how do i look at this practically if i can remove some of the emotions say, logically what can i do here to make things better and not necessarily for their loved one, right? But for themselves while their loved one is on their journey. There's loads of supports for people in addiction. Uh, and even, even though we just work with the families, if anyone that is struggling with substance misuse in any way, they want to contact the North Star 061-459-260. I'm ha- I'll happily meet with you and connect you with the right service that you need. So the service is not necessarily for the drug user, but our door is never the wrong door. If someone needs help, we'll always be there to open that door and provide them in the right direction where they need to go. We, we do that on a regular basis all the time. But with the family, what we're trying to do is provide hope for the loved one that they can manage while their family member is on their journey. And how do you do that? Well, you make them aware of how resilient they really are, that they've been dealing with this for years and they're maybe not going the right way about it, but they're still coping and they're still doing things. They still have choices. You can still be okay while your loved one is on their journey in a way it's kind of called detached with love. So step back because you can't rescue them, you can't save them, you can support them, so you know, which is very important, but you also need to support yourself. You also need to practice your own self-care. Uh, you know, is it, what's the point of being up at four o'clock in the morning driving all over the city trying to find your loved one? Is that really beneficial to anyone? Probably not. The lack of sleep, not eating, uh, you know, falling out with other family members because everyone has a different opinion on what you should do. And what we're saying is, what do you want to do? What do you need? How are you going to be okay? So the way we provide supports is in a range of ways. We have one-to-one support where people will come in for that really intense kind of one-to-one emotional private sessions. And then once we work through those, we do a lot of groups. So I actually, just before I came here, that's why I kind of get here right on time, is I run a peer support group. And I just finished at seven o'clock in Limerick and I was straight out here. They're all parents in there that have loved ones in substance misuse. A lot of times it's adult children. Some of them, they're, they're adult children of 40 years of age. They've been dealing with this for the last 30 years. Others are in their 20s and, and all different things. But what that group does for each other, and it, it's so, it's such a privilege to be part of it is because they're so empowering to each other and what to do is provide each other hope and what to do is provide each other that sense of no you're doing really well you know you stick at it you're, you're going you're doing really well and really oh, that was really positive what you said tonight and what they're doing is just encouraging each other they're empowering each other and it's males and females not just any particular sex uh, but they come out with a sense of hope that they will be okay regardless of the journey their loved one is on. And it's such a powerful part to be, to be in there with them. And sometimes it's really heavy and intense and really emotional. You can feel it and people are crying and people are angry and people are frustrated. frustrated. And sometimes there's dark humour. Someone might say something and everyone will break out laughing. But what, what are you doing? What's the point in that? 
it releases the tension out of your body. It releases that unease that you carry for a long time. The stress, the worry that makes you sick. The stress that causes cancer. The stress, the stress that causes blood pressure. So on and so forth. When you come into a service like ours, you're sitting with people that know exactly how you're feeling. Now, stories are all quite unique when it comes down to it, but the overall ba uh, banner is families affected by substance use, and they know they can speak out without being judged. They know they can speak out without... Sometimes, you know, the families, families have the best of intention, but what do they always do? They don't listen. They tell you what you should do. You should kick them out, or you should stop doing this, or you need to do this. No one wants to hear that. Everyone knows what they're trying to do. But no one actually just listens, you know, just listen to how I'm feeling and what I'm saying. So in the groups that provide that sense of safety and that space where you can just say, and the people around you are not shaking their head, they're nodding their head because they know exactly how you're feeling because they're going through it in one way or another themselves. So outside that, we do social groups. So they do creative writing. We have a knit and natter group. They, they come in, they're, they're just brilliant. They come in on, a, they were in there this morning, they come in for a couple of hours, and they knit and they natter. That's it. And there's so much, there's great crack. You can hear them laughing in the room. They bring in the cakes, the teas and coffees, and they just socialise together. No pressure, no agenda. Just come in and spend some time together. But what they're doing is spending time with like-minded people. They're spending time with people who are a positive impact on their emotional health and staying away from negative people, right? So we, we'd, work, we'd work a lot with that, saying, who's the people in your life? And it's kind of, you might draw it on the board and then you put a plus or minus next to their name. So if you need support because of your loved one's substance misuse, is this person a plus or a minus? No, they're a minus. This one's a plus, that one's a plus. So for this particular topic, then you stick with the pluses. Now, if the topic changed and just say, oh, I want to have a social life, then it might, all those people that are in your life, they get different pluses and minuses, and you contact that person for that benefit. So it's about utilising the people in your life to, to the best of your advantage, but also, you know, at the same time, then you being available to other people when they need it. Uh, the service was set up 15 years ago in the north side of Limerick City, up in my Roscoe side, at the time when there was major gangland going on across the, the city and I don't know if you can remember at that time but there was a lot of fear caused by it and there was a lot of parents that were really worried for their young kind of adult children impressionable maybe children that they were going to get caught up in this gangland way uh, and in fairness to the people they started making a lot of noise they started demanding supports they were saying that the supports there weren't suitable and what they needed wasn't available so they took it on themselves to say, we want to create a sport. And they, they got onto different politicians and different drug community education workers. And the North Star was created out of that. So, you know, there's power in a community that is willing to stand up for itself and say, we want something different. Now, what they've done, which is very different than what happens today, is, you know, it's, I suppose, you know, you go to your local politician and you say, you know, we want this, we want that. Oh, yeah, we'll get back to you, I'll bring it up in the doll and you might be waiting 10 years for something to happen and it might never happen. But these people didn't do that. They said, no, we are going to create a service. We, we're not waiting for anyone, we need this now. And within community people on the ground, they created the North Star. And it has expanded from a, a, a small service on the north side of the city, where we now cover the Limerick region. And we moved the premises into John Street in Limerick as opposed to just a, a, a little office. So the, the, the service keeps expanding. Uh, and the reason it keeps expanding 
is we're only scratching the surface of the surface on addiction, how it affects the families, how it is actually across the whole of Europe and it's very strong here in Ireland. But the supports for the families are vitally important. So we can create an environment where people feel less stigmatised and feel less shame because there's addiction within their family. Because to be quite honest, no matter where you live, no matter what uh, social area you come from, whether it's living in a disadvantaged area or coming from a, a beautiful affluent area like we live in here, there's addiction all around us. You know, how many of us like has the uncle they don't want to invite to the wedding or the aunt got the oh she likes to drop and we, we dismiss it, but it actually causes an impact and that's on the lighter side. I you know, there's many people in our community here that use substances. There is many parents and partners and children really affected by using substances. Do we know about it? Not really. Why? Embarrassment. People don't want to come forward. We need to lift that out, to normalise it, that it's actually everywhere. And the more we can speak about it, the, the, the bigger the topic will become and the more maybe impact it will have as far as how we change it. Uh, outside that, you know, before I started working with adults, I worked with young people. And why did I work with young people? Because I was one of those young people that lived in disadvantage and grew up in South Hill in the 80s at a time when there was, 80s and 90s, when there was a high level of disadvantage in that area. Uh, and I came from my own family who were actually parenting through their own traumas as well. I'm not going to go into it today. I kind of spoke about that in the past quite a bit. But it left me with no sense of hope. It left me as a kid that thought my, my perspective and my outlook in life was going to be signed at all. I got kicked out of school. Why? Not because the school did anything wrong, because I had no sense of worth within myself. I figured it was going to be on the dole. Do I really need education to be on the dole? Of course not. So what did I do? Nothing. I didn't try. didn't believe in myself. And got, did, got kicked out of school at 15 and spent a number of years just doing mediocre jobs, labouring, because I always knew I was strong. I, I'd never had a problem with working, but as long as I didn't think I had to use my brain. Uh, and done that for many years until I met the right people at the right time. You know, there was a, a, a man that used to... He was a youth worker in South Hill at the time, Larry De Clare, you probably know him. Uh, and he ended up actually running the Bedford Road Family Support Project, which was working with families with imprisonment. So there's another level of trauma. Uh, and luckily, when I, when I knew him when I was a, a youngster, he used to take us camping and fishing. But I never forgot him. And I never forgot him because he always chipped away at my self-worth. He always challenged me in my negative thinking. And he was someone that I looked up to. So when he said something positive about me, I kind of believed him. You know, I was still so damaged with myself, I didn't fully take it, but he was always trying to build your own self-worth and your confidence. And I found in later in life, you know, I, I, things have worked out pretty well for me, and later in life I met him again and said, can I come and volunteer in the Bedford Row project, working with families in prison? And he invited me in, he kind of became my mentor, if you like. And actually, it was, I was 30 years of age before I went back to education. You know, so that's 15 years later, before I finally had the confidence in my own abilities, in my intelligence, to go back into education. But I'd done it at my time, when I wanted to do it. And to be honest, adult, returning to adult education, it is a lot easier, because people are a lot more supportive, and you're actually working away at your own discretion. So you can come or you don't, but it's your own choice, and there's no pressure there, you know. 
Uh, and thankfully, I went on through, you know, I, I'd done diplomas, I'd done degrees, I ended up with a master's, I ended up with all this stuff. And I look back now and I think to myself, if I only believed in myself when I was 10, 11, 12, how different my life might have been now, you know? If I hadn't waited till I was 30 years of age, I also, if I hadn't waited till 30 years of age, I probably wouldn't have the life, less, the life lessons I have now and the insight I have of working with people in disadvantage or people caught up in addictions and tri- uh, crisis, you know? Uh, so there, there's, there's pros and cons, but I always look back and think about, if only I'd done things a bit more differently, you know? If only I tried in school, maybe I would have passed my junior cert. Maybe if I tried in school, I wouldn't have got kicked out and I would have done my leaving cert and I would have went on to college from there and went to the Debs and had all these college experiences that you people usually have. But I had none of that stuff because it was my own, I suppose, damage. But I suppose the point I'm trying to make is meeting influential people at different aspects on your life can gravitate you to a different life. And it was through the likes of meeting Ari and one or two other people that I started to say, you know, maybe there's more to this. Maybe I can do more. Maybe I can be more. And I took a chance. And as I was taking that chance, those same people were there nurturing me as I was taking a chance. Because even though I was moving forward, I still didn't feel that I was good enough. I still didn't feel that, yeah, you know, you're going to get it right. I still had these real fears internally that I was going to mess up going to get it wrong that it'll all be a waste of time and these these always come back for people uh it's like that stinking thinking there's always that devil on your shoulder telling you hey, what are you thinking you're not good enough you are you're never going to get this right you're going to mess it up again people are going to laugh at you and all these self-doubt you know but once you have the angel on the other side who's the people in your life that are encouraging and, and full of positivity it's just enough to keep you going and that's, the, that's, what, that's what inspired me to work with young people and mostly young people in disadvantage is to be that person that I needed when I was a kid that wasn't really there that, to that level to just offer that support and that encouragement to be the best that they can be. Because what I've really learned over the years is uh, as young people, when they're moving forward, they really listen to what adults tell them. And a lot of times an adult could be given really negative uh, comments or direction because they are actually unwell within themselves. And if you're actually traumatized to a certain level and you've kind of got educated over the years, your maturity stunts. So what you actually have is teenagers in adult bodies. You have mothers and fathers physically, but actually they have the maturity of an adolescent because they never, that, that part of the brain can get stunted through their own traumas, you know. So, and once you learn this, then you can also be less judgmental than other people because you understand there's reasons why they're doing what they're doing. There's reasons why they behave and, and how they behave. But if you can have hope for other people, if you can have uh, uh, an understanding that everybody deserves to be treated with respect, everyone deserves a second chance, and everyone deserves a chance at a good and happy life. Uh, so if you see someone on the street doing something that you can consider not okay, instead of judging the action, maybe ask yourself what's the communication? What are they telling us? What do they think of themselves? You know, and if you can come with a, an, an attitude of, I'm gonna try and support that person instead of being another person that drags them down. Now supporting the person could be just a smile. I'm not saying you have to invest in, in their lives or you, or you take them into your family home. You don't. But if you see someone on the street, just give them a smile. 
If you see someone begging on the street, they spend the whole day with people looking away from them. These are human beings. Give them a smile. I'm not even saying give them money. Give them a smile. Say hello. Say how was your day going? And go on your way. That has a massive impact on people. You know? I don't know if there are any questions that people want to throw at me or anything more you need to know or Joel, if I may just yep. up there just for a, a, a second. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, but all who are sharing this with us through the medium of webcam, and thank you to Martin Cooper, who is keeping tabs on this for us. Joe, what you, you said hits the nail on the head perfectly, because, first of all, you mentioned dark places, and we're so con conscious within our communities of all traditions and faiths and none irrespective of creed, belief, orientation, many are experiencing dark places. And in a, a very special way, people are trying to find a way forward, a light that shines. And this is the purpose of the, the talks. And particularly, thank you to Scarif Bay FM boarding this talk, which will be distributed uh, widely and within our own diocese and area as, as well. Uh, Joe, one thing that you mentioned, and I know my colleagues who are, are here, and thank you to Dr. Marjorie Stokes, who works along with me here, and Reverend Stephen Foster, uh, in offering phone support if people want to get in touch with them. And I get a lot of inquiries in this particular area as, as well. But one of the things, uh, Joe, that I just want to ask you about, and I know my colleagues might have another question, is what's your response to parents or guardians who have done everything from when a child has been born mm. and growing into an adolescent and young adult and adult and have done everything and try to do their very best but things don't work out and the, the young person goes on a, a different direction. Tonight for parents and for individuals who are listening to us and sharing this with us and who will hear the recording and are desperate to find light in a dark place for the, the person they love. Could you kind of speak to them? Yes, so, you know, it's a, it's a complicated topic because we're talking about our loved ones and there is so much emotional guilt and baggage and, and, and turmoil within a person who has a loved one in substance misuse because everyone kind of says, oh, I'll kick them out, stay away from them, but that is just, it's, it's not the right approach, you know, because even for a man, you know, I, I'll never understand how deep the connection is, especially between a mother and a child and how deep that goes, you know. So a lot of times it's easier for the, the male, like, in general, I'm not speaking exactly, but in general, the fathers will be a lot quicker to, to detach consequences for their actions, kick them out, they'll come back with their tail between the legs. But that's not always the case. But I think the impact on the mother is far deeper and the emotional trauma that a, that a parent feels, especially a mom, is far deeper than anyone else will be for their child, far deeper than a man, I think, including myself, will ever understand. But what I would say, and this is really, really important, it is not your fault. The situation that you're in, you know, the, the road that your loved one is on, it's their road to travel. And this is the part of detaching with love. You know, so 
you don't, you don't have to stop loving and caring and wanting the best for your loved one. It's vitally important that they have that, that sense that people are still in the corner. But it is a, it's a balancing act between, okay, am I putting any value on my own self-care? And, and am I putting any value on how my person's journey the, in addiction is really devastating me as a person? You know, the amount of people that come into North Star that have had cancer, have had strokes, have all these ailments down to stress, really down to a broken heart. And we're trying to say is, that's not okay. You know, detach with love. Step back. It doesn't necessarily say kick someone out of your house if they're living with you. What it's saying is step, step back from the trauma and the, 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 the nature and the crisis of that person's addiction. Don't be in the crisis with them. And one of this was, you know, the very common word is boundaries. You know, put boundaries in place to say, okay, if you go out and you're not coming back tonight, that's fine. Don't ring me at four o'clock in the morning, I won't be coming to get you. Or the call comes in, oh, I need money because I lost all my money or I spent all my money. No, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, so it's about putting, there is about putting consequences into action. But what I would say, and we say to people all the time, because they'll always come in and everyone's, well, do I need to kick them out? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? And I always say, just do what makes your life a little easier. So whatever decision you make, because there's no black and white to this, there's no direct answer to this. We're complex, people are complex, and that's why the area of addiction for me is so fascinating. There is no right and wrong answer. And you would think the logical stuff of what's staring you in the face, like simply like smoking. Okay, you know you're gonna die if you smoke because one or two will, but that's not enough for people to stop. There's other reasons behind it. So what we would say is, do what makes you sleep better at night. For one person, it might be moving someone totally out of their house. For the next person, it might be, no, no, I will go at two o'clock in the morning and get him because I'll actually feel better. And then that's okay. Didn't do that. If that's what you need to do to make your life, if that reduces the stress in your life, then that's what you should do. The, the hope, the question of hope. Sometimes I get despaired in, in this work, especially when you're working with adolescents and you, know, you get two steps forward and one step back, but it's the nature of life. You know, it doesn't always go to plan. And there was a lady that uh, was a manager of a service and I remember going to her one day and I had feeling deflated, kind of given up. I said, oh, this is not working. Like, like, is, is, this, is this ever going to change? Is this ever going to work? And I was really kind of down low. And her response was, and I use it all the time and I use it in the groups all the time. She said, sometimes Joe, all we have is hope and time. Hope and time. There's no other answer to it. And you can detach with love and still have hope that within time, your loved one is going to change their ways. They're going to reach out and get the help they need. You know, there'll be appropriate services to deal with their issues, you know. Uh, but that's it. There is no, there is no direct answer, answer to it. It's hope and time that things will be better. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so, when I was lucky enough when I grew up in, in South Hill, we had horses. So, just, you know, one of the lads knocking around on the streets with a horse. Uh, but that horse and those horses at that time were the only place that offered me emotional release. I wasn't comfortable within my own home to be vulnerable. I wasn't comfortable to show any fear or, or sensitivity. It just wasn't the place to do it for me at that time. So the, the one place where I actually got nurtured emotionally was actually when I was with my horses. So I could be with them and I'd be myself and sometimes I'd cry and sometimes I'd laugh and sometimes I'd talk to them. And, but it was like 
it was like I was part of them, you know. I felt like they were part of my family, you know. Uh, so from a very young age, I've always been in love with horses. Most animals, but really horses were the main thing. And then years later, I, when I trained to be an addiction counsellor, and it was just by uh, uh, constantly, just a, an opportunity of being in the right place at the right time, where a social worker said to me, oh, there's a thing, there's a counselling thing with horses out in Clonard, do you want to go? And sure, once I had horses, absolutely. So I went, and it was the Agala model. And what they were doing is... The Gala model has been around now for about 22 years. It's an international model that has covered over 50 countries and has about 4,500 members, the last, the last time we counted it. And what they, it was set up in America, as most of these kind of, kind of opportunities are, uh, to work with kids that were in penitentiaries. And what they did actually was take them to this ranch for horse riding. Uh, and sure, they were out there spending time there. And it was actually one of the social workers noticed the difference of actually when they were just with the horses as opposed to riding them, you know, because when you're riding a horse, you know, they're big animals, they're fast, there's a sense of fear, you have to control them, so you're actually not connected to your body in any way. You know, you're, you, there's, there's a process, it's like driving the car, you have to think about what you're doing. But they found when they were just hanging out with the horses, the body language is a lot more relaxed, the people became more relaxed. So the, the, the model was kind of created out of that, so I went to watch that model, and I was already trained as a counsellor, knew a lot about trauma and different things at this stage. And within 15 minutes, I was like, yeah, this is it. This is, this is for adolescence. Why? There's no talking. You know, there's no, there's no, well, what are you doing and how are you doing it? There's no judgment. There's no uh, kind of providing your advice to them, you know. What you're doing is putting them in with the horses. And now the science actually after being figured out at this stage around it, so I, I don't want to go into it, it's kind of long and laborious, but really a horse has an energy, the same we have an energy, but the horse's energy is a higher frequency. So when you're with a herd of horses, that energy exuding out of them, and because it's a higher frequency than the humans, the humans' energy will align with the horses. And what, does, what do horses do that we don't do very well? They live in the present. Absolutely live in the present. They don't judge. They don't care what you look like. All they're worried about is two things. Is there food there? And is there, are you a threat? Right? So if you've taken a horse in the wild and the mountain lion is going past, if one horse runs, they all go together. They're all aligned. No one waits to think, oh, well, oh, I don't want to offend anyone. Or should I go? Or what's going to happen? They're just connected. And once that lion leaves, they just go back to eating grass. They're not worried about when he comes back. They're just totally mindless. So when, when, when humans are with horses in that environment, it creates the same thing. It, it stops the racing of the mind. It, 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 it helps release that tension within the body that keeps those emotional barriers up. And that's what they do. The horses help you uh, kind of reduce, remove those barriers. That's just anyone being with horses, right? So then the model itself is about, okay, so the horses in a way are a lot like people. You can have the submissive one, you'll have the dominant one, you'll have the shy one, you'll have the messer. Horses are, are very kind of, they're very individual, in, in, individuals, they're, they're very personal. And when you're watching them, you'll be with the adolescents or who have actually worked with people all ages, and you put them out to the horses. And we said to them, when you're ready, come back and let's talk about what you've seen out there. Now, some people might go out and not come back. And a session is an hour long, and I'll say, there's 10 minutes left, do you want to come and have a chat, or do you want to stay where you are? And if you say to me, no, I'll stay around, that's it. Then there's no talking, session's finished and you leave, because that's your right. You're making a choice of how I want to deal with this treatment. 
and the expert on the person is the person. And we believe that in life anyway. The expert on anyone in this room is that person. And with time and space, they'll figure out what you want to do. So when they're with the horses then and they're observing them, it's like, well, who, what, what are you seeing? That one's my mother. Or that one's my boss. So what we're doing then, once you get to that level, they're no longer horses. Now we have people who are real-life role players of your life interacting with each other. And this is what we work on. So it's, it's very gentle and it's not necessarily a talking therapy and it's treated with the expert on the person is the person and you create the space and you may join the dots and then they're left to process what's happening with that. So that's why the equine therapy is very good in one sense. Like, like therapy is therapy and I, I, I believe most people should nearly go for therapy at one point or another in the sense of don't be afraid to reach out when you're feeling vulnerable. But not everyone wants talking therapy. There's many people that have been really damaged by humans and it's very hard for them to build that trust of, to show that vulnerability again. You put them in with animals, it drops straight away. And with the right approach and the, the right sense of respect for that person's decisions, you can get a lot of work done without saying very little. You know, so that's, that's kind of the, the gala model, you know. Yeah, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Thank you so much for joining us, for engaging with us. We offer a lovely expression that Joe offered, hope in time. The purpose of these talks is to offer hope and light. And as our Lord and Master took the initiative to step into areas that many dare not the tread. He reached out. He made himself go beyond boundaries and went beyond boundaries. And tonight, in a very special way, initiating the talks, that's exactly what we do. Next week, everybody, Tuesday the 7th of, of March at half past seven, the talk will not be in St. Flannan's Cathedral, but will be by Zoom, and the speaker will be Tommy Richtenstahl. Tommy is a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Czechoslovakia in 1935 to Jewish farmers and lived with his family on their farm until he was the age of eight. And more than 30 members of his family were killed during the Holocaust. And Tommy wrote a very famous book indeed, I was a boy in Belson. Tommy will be speaking to us through Zoom and indeed during the next few days I will be relaying the link indeed to all of us. So please keep an eye out for that. Tonight in a very special way, Joe, to say thank you to you for your work, for your time for the work that you do with North Star and the equine, but particularly for your own example and, and witness. And that is what these talks are about, offering hope. And especially tonight, everybody, if anyone does feel that you need to find support, 086 411 3989 might be worth a call if you need support. Joe, thank you.
on behalf of all of us this evening. And everyone, let's just finish this eve with a short prayer. Amen. May the Lord grant us a quiet night and a peaceful end. Thank you.